On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, How will we hold on to ancient wisdom traditions while applying them creatively in today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. As any student of history knows, when time becomes history, very different dynamics come into focus than the ones that are at any moment screaming for attention. In our world of digital megaphones that privilege the immediate, it becomes harder to tell the difference between what feels urgent and is actually important, actually poised to shift the world on its axis. So I was excited when Gal Beckerman's new book arrived. The title itself intrigues and compels, The Quiet Before. He is a journalist with a special interest in history and words and ideas, how ideas are passed and debated and become defining in generational time, how conversation becomes culture-shifting relationship. He attends to dynamics we don't often take seriously enough, that every idea and discovery that changes the world begins with seeds planted over long stretches and is always marked by passages that look like abject failure. Gal Beckerman offers fantastically useful insights into how our generation's media that can scale things more rapidly than ever before can also inhibit the very ingredients that make for lasting transformation. At the same time, this lens on our world refreshes with its perspective on the way change happens as opposed to mere disruption. The reality that our lives and actions below the radar hold the possibility of being more generative than we can measure. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Gal Beckerman leads The Atlantic's daily book coverage and has been a writer and editor for The New York Times Book Review, The Forward, and Columbia Journalism Review. In The Quiet Before, he tells stories from the last five centuries that have not come down in bold in history, but that incubated developments that we later experience as defining, from France to Rome, from Moscow to Ghana to Tahrir Square. So, you know, I'm always interested in where kind of the inquiries and passions that you hold, that you follow, were planted in your early life, in your childhood. And, you know, I see you as much a histori- as a historian, as a journalist. And, um, you know, I know, for example, that you are a grandchild of Holocaust survivors. So yeah. um, I don't know if that is a place you would start or... Or what else occurs to you when you think about this, the early seeds of what you're, you know, what you're working on now? Yeah, that's fascinating to think about. You know, one finds interests and curiosities and sometimes it's difficult to sort of to go deep enough beneath the surface to understand exactly where they're emerging from. But I've always really been interested in uh, the way that ideas sort of emerge and take over reality. And... I suppose there is a link. Maybe you're pointing me to one um, <laughs> to try to understand something about my my own grandparents' experience, which was extremely formative for me growing up, hearing those stories and knowing the trauma that they had that they had been through. They all, all four of my grandparents lost most of their family during the war mm. um, in a world that had sort of completely 
flipped on them in their lifetime. So there has always been a kind of interest in understanding how that could be, how how society changes in dramatic ways. Hmm. How does it start from nothing and become part of the fabric of our reality? Yeah. And, you know, I want to say to you, I, I know that a lot of what you have kind of gone into what you might call case studies, um, different events, movements, the kind of pre-movements, um, the origins of phenomena that we see much later, full-blown, right. but we don't remember the origins. Right. And I know that your focus is really on kind of progressive change and revolutionary change, but what I think is valuable about this, too, is, you know, it's also just, it's about how change happens, right? right. right. Uh, it's about how transformative change happens, um, good, bad, or ugly, right? And here we are at a moment in time in history when... You know, we, we, we are reinventing our, our structures, our organizations, our societies mm-hmm. in good ways mm-hmm. and bad. So I think mm-hmm. that this intelligence, um, this kind of looking back at the long arc is so valuable. You know, it feels necessary to me. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I feel frustrated at times by the amnesia that we tend to have societally yeah. about what came before. Uh, you know, I, there is a double meaning maybe to the book, you know, the quiet before is also maybe the quiet before the internet. Um, but there, there is this sense in which we believe that, you know, it's impossible to imagine how people sort of came together on mass or, or, or that an idea went viral, you know, um, that (laughs) how, how social media, exactly, exactly. And (laughs) so, so one of the projects of this book was to say like, what would it be if we told these stories next to each other? You know, if we had a book that, mm-hmm. you know, started with, you know, letters before the scientific revolution and ended with Twitter and Black Lives Matter, you know, mm-hmm. and, and try to understand what were the threads that yeah. connected them in terms of, you know, people need a means to communicate amongst themselves and you know, when you're not in a room around a table, which is one option, but mm-hmm. it's not always an option that's available when you want to sort of build something at scale. Like you need you need to have ways that you talk to each other. And my interest is in in the medium and the ways in which we need to understand it, them as, as tools. You know, and I think what you said was very correct. Like these are tools that could be used for terrible ends, you know, yeah. for horrible yeah. ends. Well, it's, but how, it's how transformation happens, and that can yeah. take many yeah. forms and exactly. have a lot exactly. of different kinds of character. I mean, so, okay, so you you often speak about, you know, what is needed for this kind of sustained, sustainable right. growth and development. Um, I just, some of the notes I made, a small group of committed people. There needs to be a certain amount of incubation, heat, closeness, intimacy. And someplace you said there were, there were a certain set of qualities the yes. incubation gave these movements. Right. Really interesting list. Patience, coherence, imagination, debate, focus, and control. And, as you said, a medium that provides incubation but can also give a movement these necessary ingredients for building to more lasting change. Right. Um, you know, you begin... In France in 1635 <laughs> with the Republic of Letters, um, right. a time in which the mechanics of everything was being examined. Um, mm-hmm. Why did you start there? 
Well, I just, I really became fascinated with, with the particular story that I tell, yeah. but it, it gave me, which I can describe a little yeah, bit, but yeah, it yeah. gave, yeah. Um, well, the story I tell is, is, is of a man named uh, Perasque, uh, who was an aristocrat from Aix-en-Provence, who was part of this Republic of Letters. And the Republic of Letters, for people not familiar with it, was this fairly large group. I think there were, you know, maybe like 200 to 300 people uh, involved in this at any given moment. It lasted for actually hundreds of years, but had its sort of real flourishing uh, in the 17th and into the 18th century. And it was a way for people who were, they called themselves natural philosophers then, but all kinds of you know aristocrats and missionaries and people who had kind of an intellectual bent but were not part of universities and were doing all kinds of you know proto scientific investigations on their yeah. own they were just you know the doctrines of the church were sort of beginning to break down and it was an opportunity to look at the natural world and use the powers of observation to try to understand it. Yeah. But at the time that Piresk was doing this work, it was still fairly dangerous work. It was, you know, he, one of his mentors at some point and the man that he, one of the men he most emulated was, was Galileo. Mm-hmm. Um, Piresk wasn't a character who wanted to sort of blow a trumpet and draw that much attention to himself. He wanted to carry out his scientific investigations in a quieter way. And so mm-hmm. he used the medium of letters. Letters were yeah. incredibly effective because they kind of flew in. Not only did they fly under the radar, but they were a way to um, to have a sort of an ongoing conversation. Um, you know, that chapter I call patience right. because there there is a quality in which, you know, you get out of writing letters back and forth where it duplicates a conversation. It's thoughts traveling through space and you can kind of slowly influence people to a way of thinking or share ideas in a way that, you know, a book is one person's kind of uh, announcement to the world. Yeah. Um, but but this is this is a conversation and he wanted the conversation. And anyways, Piresque had this idea that he wanted to figure out the longitude of the Mediterranean Sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the maps, it seemed at the time, were completely off. They were from the time of Ptolemy. I mean, they were, you know, mm-hmm. th- thousands of years, a thousand years yeah. old. And But in order to do this, to accurately figure out longitude, what you needed was a lot of people in a few different, different geographic locations. Different places, right? Yeah. Right? Different yeah. places around the yeah. kind of known world, all observing one uh, astrological event uh, at the same time and then marking the difference in time they saw it. And then that difference would equal longitude. Right. Um, so Puresque recruited all kinds of, you know, far-flung missionaries and merchants who were not, you know, natural philosophers, were mm-hmm. not in this Republic of Letters. And he ended up, finding that the Mediterranean was, in fact, about 500 miles shorter than everyone right. thought it was. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, you, 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 you speak about him as a connector of Europe's great minds and yeah. of the quiet revolution that was offered by the Post. But also yeah. I was really taken by these words of his. Mm-hmm. Um, the brevity of human life does not allow that one person alone is sufficient it is necessary to adopt the observations of a good number of others from the past centuries and future ones to clarify that which fits better. On the one hand, I think, you know, right, when you describe what had to be done to make certain kinds of observations that we could now do with very sophisticated instruments, Mm -hmm. and yet what he says here remains true, (laughs) right? And in fact, what they did in that incredibly analog way was one of the foundations on which we know how to do what we know how to do now. 
Yeah, it's true. And you know, I love that sentence, Ren, because actually that's sort of science as well, yes, isn't it? Like it's we, science. You know, you, yeah. you take what people have observed in the past and then you, you redo experiments and you yeah. tweak them because they're not accurate enough. And, yeah. and he sort of understood that. And what was fascinating was how he connected that to to the letters, you know, the letters, of course, you know, weren't a conversation with people in the past or people in the future, but it was the ongoingness mm-hmm. and the, and the, and the, I guess the appreciation for the incremental, you yeah. know, which is something yeah. also that we've sort of lost <laughs> today, yeah. but the sense that like knowledge happens in, you know, fits and starts and you, you, you know, people piece it together from their own particular angles that they're coming from. And, and that, you know, that's how they worked in the Republic of Letters. That's, that's how they, they did their work. They would send each other data. They'd find sometimes artifacts, you know, uh, strange bones they'd discovered or right, fossils right. And, and sort of check each other. And, you know, they, this was sort of in the age before this was institutionalized. They were almost like, a, like the board of a scientific journal or something. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the journalist of ideas and history, Gal Beckerman. We're talking about his book, The Quiet Before, on the unexpected origins of radical ideas. You also go to Manchester in 1839, mm-hmm. and the subject is universal suffrage, which just feels... So obvious, right? That mm-hmm. it would come, <laughs> right? Right. right? right. But this story is incredible. Of in eighteen thirty nine, one point two million signatures collected on pages that were pasted together that would be three miles long. Yeah. And w- what struck me so much about that story that this, you know, and and largely the the petition and the the petition campaign was the brainchild of the the man who's sort of the center of that chapter, uh, Fergus O'Connor, mm-hmm. who was a kind of a progressive politician at the time, and his message he traveled all over England. His message was pour your passion into the petition, into getting people to sign it, into having conversations around it. You know, this is also a moment, this interesting juncture between kind of oral culture and literate culture where people are, you know, you, somebody knocks on your door and starts to have a conversation with you about why you don't have the right to vote. But it ends in a, in an act of writing, you know, of, of writing your name, of joining Mm. this community of people and your identity changes. You become a part of the working class. And also, I mean, also we need to say, and this is true of absolutely every t- story you tell, these are not unbroken arcs of beauty and triumph, right? right so right, right. so even with 1.2 million signatures on a piece of paper three miles long, it was ridiculed. And yep. it's mostly a history of failure for a long time. Um, but what you also, the story you also tell that feels to me as if, because I'm always thinking, what do we have to learn here as we, as we have to remake a world? Right. As you said, it wasn't just signing the page. It was having the conversations. And you said there was, and over time that there were these small local associations that coalesced that became self-sustaining. And they were right. they were temperance societies and they were collective newspaper reading clubs and lectures mm-hmm. and garden parties and singing and picnics. Yes. And it was that human force behind the signatures that that moved, that right. shifted things. Right. 
the petition became the sort of focal point around which a whole social world developed. Um, I think, you know, you, you made a really good point about the work involved in, in making it yeah. happen, you know, because, yeah. you know, we have this critique today of the kind of slacktivism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and partly it's that there is something about doing that work that, you know, when it's harder, you know, when mm-hmm. it's not a click, but you have to actually, you know, uh, go door to door and put in the time that that has these residual effects for a movement. It it bonds people. It makes you feel more identified. It it gives you a sense of connection and purpose. That's um, because you've put in the sweat, you know, you've put in the time yeah. so that it had its own role to play. Actually, the, the hardship, the of hardship. It. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I I feel like we could spend a couple of hours just going through every chapter. And I'll just like, in, and then we go to Florence in 1913 with the Florentine Futures. Right. I have to tell you, just like my favorite line in that is Nina Loy, who's one of your characters. And she says, personally, I am getting very young. <laughs> which yeah, which is actually something I'm kind of feeling like this right now um, yeah. in our tortured world. Um, uh, and I think that also is, you know, somehow part of the story of not just um, being part of something that changes the world, but how this kind of depth of engagement not just changes, but energizes, enlivens right. the people right. who do it, even when they are facing one setback after the other, sometimes very grave and dangerous setbacks. Right, right. right. And all of these stories, I mean, one thing is, these are mostly stories kind of um, animated by people whose names we don't remember, right? It's mm-hmm. not it's mm-hmm. not the the person who became famous at the apex or when things kind of when it was not the quiet before, but the noisy, right? <laughs> right. right, the noisy emergence right. into a kind of mainstream civilizational attention, right. and years and years and years passing, right? But where something is happening. Um, yes. And, and I think the thing that's happening and the thread uh-huh. between all these, and I don't, uh-huh. I mean, it's the thing that fascinates me most, um, is they're talking. It's uh-huh. conversation. Uh-huh. And I mentioned in the book, Jürgen Habermas, the German philosopher yeah. who sort of made a real sort of fetish of, of the, the role of conversation and of talking and of deliberation in sort of the building of you know, democratic society of, of Western civilization. And that's what I see in those moments in the quiet mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. I see people having conversation and it's through the friction of mm-hmm. minds interacting mm-hmm. through speech, through talking, through sharing ideas that mm-hmm. that is the only way that a newness sort of enters the world. Mm-hmm. And so it, it feels funny in a moment where there's so much noise and talk and chatter, you know, around us to be arguing for, for more talking and conversation. But in some ways, for me, it's the, like, there's a distinction between what does it mean to be social, right? And there is a concept of being social where, you know, you go to a, a cocktail party and it's really loud and somebody makes a joke and everyone kind of turns in that direction. And then you have like a snippet of conversation with somebody else, but you can hardly hear it. Uh, and then, and then there's like, 
you know, you, you get pulled into something else and pulled out of that. And then at the end of the day, you, you come home from that party and you're taking off your shoes and you think like, I didn't actually talk to anybody. Right. Like <laughs> right. that was, yeah. Like what, did, what, did, what was that? And you know, I didn't connect with anybody. That's, that's right. And that's the, so like. to me, yeah. that's the social yeah. of social media. Yeah. But, but that isn't the only model of what it means to be social. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a phrase you have in there somewhere, slow communal discovery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I believe it's true to say that you were um, you were initially motivated to start investigating this as you watched Tahrir Square unfold the Arab Spring, yeah. two thousand eleven. Is that right? Because what happened there in terms of a social pivot, a social movement that kind of riveted the world was a was a very different model from all these things we've been talking about because yeah. of this power yeah. of social media. Well, I think, you know, it was a time where we talked about Twitter revolutions and there were people who were extremely um, bullish on the notion that all you needed, uh, in fact, the main character of the chapter I have about the Arab Spring, Wal Ghanim, said, you know, all you... That's it. All you need for a revolution is like social media, you know, that that's, Mm -hmm. that's the secret ingredient. And I think what actually happened is it did provide this incredible tool for getting people into the streets. That viral quality was incredibly helpful in speeding things up. So yeah. speed and scale. You know, yeah. I don't think yeah. we can argue with yeah. speed and scale as, as, a, as qualities that the internet has and that social media in particular has. And so, you know, you had a lot of disgruntlement among a certain class of people in Egypt and in, in a lot of different Arab societies. I looked specifically at Egypt and, and mm-hmm. the social media sort of allowed that match to be lit in a pretty dramatic way and got people into the, into the streets. The problem, as I sort of even intuited it then, you know, although I, it became clearer to me as I saw a lot of these revolutions almost uniformly lead to even more repressive situations in those countries, as is the case in Egypt, is that the tool that actually allows you to go out into the, if, if we're looking at these, at these communications tools as having certain capabilities, right? It, that a bullhorn, which is a wonderful yeah. tool, yeah. right? Yeah. Like a, a bullhorn is very effective. But if you begin, if you start to believe that a bullhorn is the only thing that you need, and if you contort your movement so that it's all about making sure that you can hold on to the bullhorn and use the bullhorn, you're denying yourself some really important tools. And the coalition that came together in Tahrir Square was incredible and new. And what they needed to do was sort of turn themselves into a real political opposition, which was going to be hard in any circumstance, um, especially because they were mostly up against the Muslim Brotherhood who had been, who had yeah. spent decades sort of developing their hierarchy and their, their identity as an organization. But but this group of, of, of radicals who wanted to democratize Egyptian society, they, they said, hey, this tool, this bullhorn really worked well for us. That's the thing. And they just kept trying to use it again and again and again and didn't give themselves the opportunity to develop um, the other tools that they would need to actually become a real opposition. Yeah, something that was um, sustained and... Yeah. Robust. Was this Mahmoud Salem? Mm-hmm. So that what social media gave the revolution, the aspect it seems stuck on and could never outgrow was was a spirit for destruction eventually. Like mm-hmm. not not mm-hmm. it didn't give it the tools for the building, the the, right. the digging in. <laughs> 
Right. And then while Gonim, you, you write, became, who was the avatar of the Arab Spring, became a social media reformer. Yeah. You know, something, I, I'm, I've, I've wanted to talk to somebody about this. I've, you know, for me, the Arab Spring, because I also, like you, look at the long sweep of history mm-hmm. um, and what happens when, you know, what we see differently in when time becomes history. I mean, you know, I, my suspicion is that even though it had this very different trajectory, this dramatic trajectory of scaling and then seeming to be completely deflated, that that seeds were planted, right? That that there, yeah. and I mean, I do hear this from time to time when I when I speak with people who know that region. So now it's like the quiet before has come after mm-hmm. the, <laughs> mm-hmm. the dramatic um, <laughs> revolution that that would have been. Yeah. Um, so, for example, the French Revolution, right, which right. we think of as a successful revolution mm-hmm. and forget that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went back and looked <laughs> at the timeline just because I was going to be, you know, it was in 1789 that the Bastille gets stormed. You know, the French right. Republic is proclaimed in 1792. In 1793, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette are executed. Napoleon sides with the revolutionaries. But right. by 1804, he has crowned himself emperor. And, right, right. right. And we forget he, the whole reign of terror reinstates part. Louis XVI's <laughs> brother as king. Um, right, when right. is that? 90, you know, uh, 25 years after what we celebrate as the French Revolution. Right. We see also at this remove that something took hold that was transformative mm-hmm. um, over time. And I just, you know, my suspicion, and you could call me hopeful, but I think the way these things work is that something happened in 2011, and yes. in 30 years, we're going to have a very different view of it than we do right now. Oh, I'm just curious I, what I, you think about no, that. No, I, I, I agree, if only for one thing, which mm. is it brings possibility into the world. Yeah. You know, when people can't sort of strive for a reality until they can begin to imagine it, right? Yeah. Um, and to imagine it, they need to see some indication that it could exist, might exist, you know. And so the fact that this level of protest, that they brought Mubarak down. Mm-hmm. Right. And if it happened, it could happen again. Yeah. And I think that, that that formulation in people's minds, um, if it happened, it can happen again. Mm-hmm. And maybe this time it could be different. Maybe this time people will be more prepared. Maybe there will be, there is a quiet before that's happening now. You know, um, the political activists in Egypt are an incredibly embattled group of people right now. Yeah. But, you know, I end that chapter with, with a man uh, named Allah, who's probably the most sort of well-respected of the, of the activists. And he, he's, it was him talking about like the lessons of not being on social media, right. you know, that, right. that, that, that these things do come in cycles and there are lessons to be learned. And, and I think, I think that one of the lessons is, you know, you have to build a movement so that when the explosive moment happens, when the viral moment happens, mm-hmm. when, when you have the instant where you can have an opportunity to recruit a mass of people to your idea that you're ready for it that you've done that hard work mm-hmm. of actually hammering out you know, what you want and who you want to be. But also that's human relational work, right? It's right, that, what right. was that language of um, the physical, right? A culture being spinning out from a central intimate act carried out one person yeah. at a time. Yeah, I really believe that's true.
a short break, more with Gal Beckerman. On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the latest discoveries in the science of hope and optimism, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the journalist Gal Beckerman. In his new book, The Quiet Before, he revisits dynamics across five centuries that tell a story we don't often take seriously enough. How every idea that has changed the world began with seeds planted over long, fitful stretches. The Civil Rights Movement, the Southern Freedom Movement, is a vivid example in living memory. We can trace its origins in decades or in centuries that preceded what were later seen as history-making triumphs, like the March on Washington or Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches heard across the globe. The final chapter in The Quiet Before is called The Names, and it is a reflection on the post-George Floyd era. It throws into relief the way the young and still-evolving model of movement that is Black Lives Matter has followed this pattern, only fitfully seen and heard and heeded in dominant culture, even as it was and is remaking lives and the world. Somewhere you said in your chapter called The Names, you know, by early 2020, Black Lives Matter was talked about in the past tense, if it was talked mm-hmm. about at all. And that's in yeah. terms of the official narrative mm-hmm. and um, powerful media on every side of the political spectrum. Um, and then when George Floyd was murdered and in the context of the year of 2020 and that, it was very much alive, Black Lives Matter. But it didn't look yeah. like a movement that we'd been trained to see. Yeah, yeah. Right? And there it was, and it had a fullness to it, and it had depth to it. hmm Yeah. And it had objectives that people might not have been aware of until they really were, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, you know, reforming the police. You know, that, that um, I think one of the things I tried to do in that chapter was take the slightly longer view of the last, you know, 10 years, or, mm-hmm. I mean, not, not even quite 10 years, but talk to activists who were involved in what was sort of the first wave of Black Lives Matter, which was, you know, started around uh, Trayvon Martin's killing uh, and through Ferguson and really up until 2016 when, you know, a certain presidential candidate sort of sucked all the oxygen out of social media. Um, But there was, this was this kind of long moment where there was these series of horrific videos and moments of police brutality that that allowed the movement to kind of emerge in people's consciousness and then mm-hmm. sort of grab attention, then kind of flare flare out, then grab attention, right. then flare out, grab attention, flare out. And, you know, I started talking to, to folks actually before 2020. I'd actually written a ch- version of that chapter, you know, that I had finished at the end of 2019, um, thinking that I was writing a kind of a, an obituary for Black Lives Matter. Yeah. But when I began to talk to these activists, they said, you know, no, actually, no. We, yeah. we, we learned a lot from that moment. And one of yeah. the things they learned was sort of the central lesson of 
that I learned in my book, looking mm -hmm. at the past, which is, you know, we need to be prepared for those moments, you know, and, and to be prepared for those moments means hunkering down now mm -hmm. and that movements have a cycle. Um, you know, a lot of the, I'm not talking about sort of maybe some of the younger activists that just sort of like run out into the streets as soon as they're starting to run out in the streets for it. But the people mm -hmm. who were really organizers in various communities, mm -hmm. they understood that they needed to get off social media. Mm -hmm. You know, I look at one group called the Dream Defenders in Miami who yeah. actually did this. They did something called a blackout mm -hmm. uh, where they just completely got off and then started talking to people in their uh, communities. And one of the things that mattered to them as a group was... Um, defunding the police and what they discovered when they started talking to people, you know, going door to door, having conversations is that the majority of people did not want to defund the police. They yeah. were in it's their more own, complicated you know, than that. yeah, that it was yeah. more complicated that they yeah. were, they were worried about what that would mean. They didn't really understand yeah. what the concept was, uh, mm -hmm. that the concept was about, you know, not blindly funding police departments in this country to the tune that they're mm -hmm. usually funded, but actually moving some of that money away mm -hmm to, to other, or funneling some of that yeah. money into other social uh, services and, you know, maybe having a, um, you know, a social worker respond to a situation in the street as opposed to a police officer, um, that they're actually kind of very nuanced uh, yeah. and interesting proposals um, that were sort of bubbling, uh, but people didn't understand them. And, and, and the idea of getting off social media was like this keeps us from just relying on this it's hard, slogan. It's hard to do nuance on social media, right? That's, exactly. That's what exactly. it doesn't do well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and actually through these conversations and through um, actually, you know, much like the, the petitioners in the 18th, you know, 30s, you know, going around and actually uh, trying to, to convince people of a position or understanding where they're coming from. And those are those acts of conversation that I think made those groups a lot more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, at, at the height of that sort of earlier phase of Black Lives Matter, 2013 mm -hmm. to 16, you know, the people who in newspapers and magazines were literally making lists of the most influential activists in the movement based on their follower counts on Twitter, yeah. you know? And, right. And there were, that was so controversial inside. Yeah. And yeah. so when you, and when you do that, yeah. you know, let's say you're an organizer, just sort of like on the ground trying to, to have influence in a local city council race, because you know that, um, that who this person could tip the balance and actually enact local laws that will affect communities of color that you care about, you know, that you're trying to advocate on the part of. And then you see that like the people who are getting attention are, you know, the ones who right. act, who know how to make Twitter work for them and, right. and have the kind of voice that Twitter wants, you know, mm -hmm. and the, um, it can be a very demoralizing thing and, and make you think that that's where you need to shift your attention to. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the, one of the themes in your writing and and one thing that's so great about reading this is that our imaginations are very are kind of paralyzed <laughs> about by the world of social media, like by how we see things happen now, right? Even yeah. by a phrase like going viral or failing right. to go viral, right. uh, being followed, being liked or not. You know, whereas whereas in previous eras, in some places, things were done private because that's all you had. Mm -hmm. We now have a world where everybody is handed the micro, the megaphone, essentially. Yeah. And I, I, you know, one of the things I, I don't want people to read this and think the internet is, you know, fundamentally horrible and we need to just all go use typewriters. It's actually mm -hmm. just a plea for some 
self-awareness mm-hmm. about the way that we use the various tools that are available to us yeah. online. And somehow, you know, when it comes to movements or when it comes to trying to put a new idea into the world and convince other people of that idea. We still are attached to this idea of virality as like, as, as the thing that matters most. We still believe that like. Scaling quickly. Yeah. If we exactly scaling quickly, if we just put up a good Facebook post, if we get a lot of people into our group online, if our tweet goes viral, like we're starting something, something real. And that's sort of what I'm pushing against is Mm -hmm. to, to, and that's what the Black Lives Matter activists who I got to know really, really understood mm-hmm. is that, you know, this has its function. It's one thing. It's mm-hmm. one tool in the toolbox. You know, mm-hmm. I keep returning to this notion of, of tools, you know, but I mm-hmm. think I think that is the way we need to think about the media that we mm-hmm. use and that we need to be careful about when we actually pick it up and and understand that there are other tools in that toolbox. And some of them might feel counterintuitive because it's not what's particularly popular at the moment, mm-hmm. but they are very effective in this process of sort of development and incubation. Yeah. And I would just, you know, I would just kind of paraphrase it that way. Like it let the context of how we use the tools be what we can know about how the world actually works, how change yeah. actually happens yeah. that is generative and sustainable. Um, and that's, and that's kind of the offering um, you're making. Um, yeah. You know, um, I I loved reading, I think this is an article you wrote, about reading parties <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in 2020. Yeah. And 2020 silent reading parties, which you both wrote about and also took part in. Quarantine yes. book club, borderless book club. You yes. wrote about this Hannah Arendt reading circle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Reading about, reading the human condition, which is just such a phenomenal, uh, eternally uh, insightful book. Yeah. And you use this, you work with this image that somebody gave you who's leading one of those, the reading circles. And, yeah. and he said, when you have a group of people sitting around a table talking... The table is what makes them a group. Yeah, and if I you take that. the table away, they're just individuals. They're not connected. But I think you yeah. asked, is Zoom our table? Yeah. Well, in, in that moment, <laughs> um, it certainly felt like it. Um, in that, you know, the Aran's image of the table mm-hmm. and, you know, the people sitting around the table and then the table disappearing and who are they? Yeah. Uh, is is really a moving one to me, and it's one that inspires sort of my search in this book in a mm-hmm. way because uh, I wanted to understand sort of what those tables are for mm-hmm. us as as people. You know, I'm looking at the specific context of like how change begins, but um, it seems to me that the table is has an important role. The physical table, this mm-hmm. space that's bringing people together into conversation. Mm-hmm. And her point was once the table is gone, you know, who are we? And I think she's pointing to to a medium there in a way. You mm-hmm. need a uh, an avenue through which you come together. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when I started to look at letters, when I started to look at petitions and all these examples that we expl- we talked about, um, I sort of found those those tables. The you tables know, those, are always yeah. in the story, right? Yeah, they, yeah, there's always something that is bringing people mm-hmm. together um, mm-hmm. in in that way. And um, can we find those tables online today? Are people doing that? Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know my 
objective if there's a, if there's any advocacy in this book it's to uh, it's to to search for them and understand their importance to human development and progress well but i also feel like you're pointing us back to the actual tables right like yeah, that's saying true. let's not <laughs> let's let's do both but let's not forget that we yeah. still have tables to sit around we still have and that actual somehow tables that yeah. is an absolutely essential thing that happens um for sure when for things sure. take off in a long-term way for sure Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the journalist of ideas and history, Gal Beckerman. So I know we're speaking as, as this book, The Quiet Before, is just entering the world, but I, I understand that you met over Zoom with an eighth grade social studies class in New York City. <laughs> I did. Yeah, and, and they had read, I guess, the introduction and I'm so curious to hear. Um, yeah, these are Pete, these are young humans who've grown up with media as we know it now. Um, yeah. I'm just so curious about what their questions and observations were, and and how they how they perhaps were different from yours, and what yeah. you learned from that exchange. They were wonderful. First of all, they were so so um, willing and eager to sort of understand. They they were studying social movements, so I was uh-huh. sort of coming in to, to talk to them from a place of you know, this expertise gained from the book. And they, you know, the first thing that was funny was that they, it's very hard for them to imagine doing something (laughs) in an analog world, you know, (laughs) Um, you know, they, they, they they're so, it's so part of the fabric of their reality, you know, that um, how could, a meme, you know, not be involved when right. when you're talking about social movements. Isn't that what a social movement is? Right. You know, is right. <laughs> um, but but I have to say, their you know their their questions were you know kind of more searching than anything else. You know, they wanted to understand sort of how you recreate the thing that I'm talking about. You yeah. know, like how do you step away? Uh, it was, they were looking for prescriptions, you know, Mm -hmm. I think, which I found to be hopeful because, you know, they, um, even if it was difficult for them to sort of imagine what, what change could mean without this particular tool, they've become very familiar with, you know, they do everything on, um, they, they still were, they said, well, like, how do you do it? Like, how do you find the quiet? You know, mm-hmm. where, you know, what's that process like? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, each kind of asking it in different ways, but it did make me sort of think that, you know, that they had the capacity mm-hmm. <laughs> if they were, if they were asking the question. Mm-hmm. If you look around our, our world now, um, where do you, I mean, obviously there's a, there's an inherent contradiction in this question because part of what you're doing is talking about things that can only be seen decades later, right? Right, right, (laughs) And that's kind of the point of it. Um, But, uh, you know, what are you observing now that, that, you know, might be something that someone 30 years from now looks at and says, oh, there's a beginning. There's a quiet beginning. Yeah. I mean, it's not even so quiet, but I have to say, you know, one of the things lately that I've been 
aware of that I think we've all been aware of to some extent is the, the activism around climate change yeah. and particularly young people. Um, and I find it, you know, I find it very hopeful. You know, some of the conversations um, that I've heard recently are a real rejection of the performativeness of, of not just politicians mm -hmm. actions, but of, you know, anybody who, is on social media kind of making a big deal about something they're doing. You know, they, they're, they're interested in, um, in getting back to, to basics and, and figuring out alternatives. Mm -hmm. And, and there is a sense that the way to do that is on a much smaller scale. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's, to me, that's hopeful. Um, you know, I see similar conversations happening around police reform, you know, um, particularly among, you know, the activists that I spoke to. Those are kind of two areas where that are demanding a lot of imagination. Yeah. You know, if yeah. if 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 you want to rethink uh, how we're going to approach this crisis of, uh, of climate change, it seems to me the way that we've been doing things or the way we've imagined we can change things is not working. Yeah. Uh, so the avenues for uh, picturing what could work, you know, we have to establish those. We have to create the spaces where that can occur. And I feel like there are, there is that young people are in some ways more conscious of, you know, at least the ones that I've heard talk about these issues, they're conscious of, of the way that something like, uh, social media sort of distorts what they do. Yeah. And, they, and they, they, they have the awareness to like, to push it away or at least keep it at arm's length. Yeah, and use it as a tool and yeah. but see its limitations. Yeah. Um, so I ask you a qu question, like, you know, just in, in light of all these things we've been discussing, you know, what, what we just kind of right now this week today, what makes you despair and, and where are you finding hope? Oh, give me one second. <laughs> That's allowed. <laughs> um. I think despair is is easier for me <laughs> to answer right away. Mm -hmm. um, I have a twelve year old and a nine year old, and I worry about the role that technology has in their lives and the way that it's that they're losing a capacity to focus and sustain attention in a way that I think is important, not just to do things like read books, which matter to me a lot, mm -hmm. <laughs> but to do really anything that demands hard work, um, which, you know, I know that they're going to want to do. Mm -hmm. So I find myself despairing a lot mm -hmm. about, you know, what it means that their, that their brains have sort of contorted to, mm -hmm. <laughs> to these devices that, that they find themselves on too much because, and, and COVID has obviously yeah. exacerbated this to an extraordinary degree. I find hope, though, in the knowledge that, you know, the things that bring us joy haven't changed <laughs> that much. Right. Um, it's still, you know, and, and in some ways we've been reminded of them in this moment. Uh, I miss my friends. You know, mm -hmm. I miss having social contact in a way that's been very hard to find over the last two years, even as like COVID has, yeah. you know, waxed and waned. You know, like we've, we, we, I felt, I've felt pretty isolated. Not enough tables um, in your life. Not enough tables in my life. Yeah. I just said this morning to a friend, I said, I, do, I haven't been in a bar in a long time. And, yeah. you know, I don't know that I really need a, a 
Like I wouldn't think that I would need a bar, but there is a particular <laughs> kind of space right. that opens up when you're sitting and you're having a beer and then maybe yeah. a second beer and you're in, you're, yeah. it, it's, it's, it is that table yeah. that's bringing you together. And so, um, what brings me hope, I guess, you know, I mean, that's, that could be a despairing thought, you know, mm-hmm. I need, I need the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> uh, I'm hopeful in that, like, I haven't lost, uh, and I don't think humanity, <laughs> if I can speak that broadly, has lost that really deep need, you know, in spite mm-hmm. of the fact that we've been deprived in all these ways. And I find that hopeful because it mm-hmm. means that there are these essential qualities of life that we need. And one of them is being with people and that in some ways we've been given this gift I mean at a horrible price but we've been given this gift of being reminded of that Gal Beckerman is the senior editor for books at The Atlantic his new book is The Quiet Before on the unexpected origins of radical ideas. He's also the author of When They Come For Us, We'll Be Gone, The Epic Struggle to Save Soviet Jewry. Being project is Chris Hegel, Loren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Check, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavon, Padre Gotuma, Ben Cott, Gautam Shrikashin, Lily Benowitz, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, Matt Martinez, and Amy Chatelaine. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.